Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny interviews Louisiana chef Amy Sins to discuss her work with Second Harvest Food Bank and the food culture in Louisiana. After that, she talks with Washington, D.C. chef and restaurateur Eric Bruner-Yang to talk about the Power of Ten initiative and the restaurant industry during coronavirus. Enjoy the show. Before I introduce our amazing guest, Chef Amy Sins from New Orleans, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the importance of the culinary and restaurant industry in, in all of our lives. The, the James Beard Foundation announced its nominees yesterday, and there were so many amazing chefs that I've met in person or want to meet in person um, who are doing, you know, have been doing incredible work and in, in making restaurants real destinations and, and keeping a lot of people um, not only fed with really delicious food, but also keeping them working. And now they have a really uh, un- uncertain future. And, you know, one of the big perks uh, of my job is getting to meet so many chefs in person and interview them and and really um, travel to interesting destinations and, you know, eat incredible meals at, at restaurants all over the world. And every restaurateur and chef and cook I've talked to over the last several weeks has really had to think and is still thinking about what the restaurant and culinary industries will look like post-COVID-19. Um, and, and they're thinking, you know, over the next few weeks, over the next few months, over the next five or 10 years, what what will our restaurant world sort of look like after this pandemic? And, and um, every one of them is also thinking about how to feed folks in need, um, including uh, donating to food pantries and school lunch programs and finding ways to support restaurant and food workers and frontline healthcare workers. Um, both of the live casts that we're doing today, um, this one now at, at 1 p.m. Eastern time and our, our next one at 5 p.m. Eastern time are with chefs who are doing incredible things in incredible food cities. Um, and they're working to stay in business while also, again, making sure that those in, you know who are in need are being fed as well. Um, so I want to give another shout out. Um, I've been doing this a couple of times uh, every week to the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which is fighting to save restaurants impacted by COVID-19. And you can find out more information about them at saverestaurants.com. You can also go to jamesbeard.org and learn more about their relief fund for the food and beverage industry, and that's called Open for Good. So again, jamesbeard.org and saverestaurants.com. They they really need your help. I I, I want us all to really think about what the world's going to look like post-COVID, and I want amazing restaurants back that are, you know, able to treat their workers fairly and and keep people in business and and make our cities and our towns really vibrant places where there's delicious, um, you know, food that we can all uh, enjoy and and celebrate. I am so excited to to talk to our guest today um, because she uh, lives in one of the greatest food cities in the world, New Orleans, where I had the privilege of living. It was a complete honor to live in New Orleans for as long as I did. Uh, chef Amy Sins is the chef and owner of Langlois, which is an interactive traveling culinary experience that brings the joy of New Orleans 
uh, food culture to eaters. And she's very, very active in helping to mobilize the New Orleans food community to help with food relief efforts in light of COVID-19. This is something she has a lot of experience with um, during floods that have happened in New Orleans in the past. Um, I, I know Amy because she lives next door to one of my dearest friends, Jamie Koch. So hi, Jamie, I know you're watching today. And I, I want to thank Amy for keeping Jamie and her boyfriend, Andy, fed and full of delicious beverages um, uh, during this time. I hear about it all the time. So I'm so glad you're neighbors. It makes me feel like uh, Jamie's being taken care of. Um, Amy also has her own radio show in New Orleans. So I'm really happy to turn the tables on her today <laughs> and, and, and ask her a lot of questions. Thanks so much for being here, Amy. I know how busy you are. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm never too busy to talk food or community. And that, those are my two favorite things to talk about. That's great. That's great. I'm hoping you can give a, an overview of pre-COVID, what your business and what your life as a chef was like in New Orleans. Sure. Um, you know, one thing that I have found is that as a chef and a small business owner, you have to constantly adapt to the changing needs of your clients. And when I first opened up Lingua, we started out as a hands-on cooking class uh, business. Then we noticed that our clients really just wanted to drink wine and hang out and <laughs> poke at it a little bit, but not so much cook. So we switched and for years we were an interactive dining restaurant. And one thing that I started to see is that people were wanting very exclusive, small dinner party style events versus dining in a restaurant so we decided to take the show on the road and we travel so i go to people's houses their office buildings their convention centers their conferences and cook and talk and tell stories uh, as a little kid i always used to tell my mom i wanted to grow up and throw dinner parties and i kind of get to do that as a career now and who would have thought that the same little girl that helped polish the silver is now you know doing dinner parties for a living but it, you know, so many people want to learn about New Orleans food and culture, right. but they only have three days in New Orleans and they're maybe between conventions and, and meetings or their uh, significant other has them so scheduled because we have so many restaurants to eat at right. that I try to bring the food stories and culture directly to them. So that, that's what we've been doing for the last two years. It's amazing. And you're so full of energy. And I know how much fun these these interactive experiences must be. And you're from Louisiana. So you have a lot of stories to tell about the food culture there and why things are so important and so unique to Louisiana. Absolutely. And, you know, I like to think that we are one of the first regional cuisines in the country. If we look at our Cajun culture and our Creole culture, and you get both of those here in South Louisiana, and there's nothing more rewarding than getting to share that with someone. Uh, when we, you know, people are like, well, why don't you just open as a regular full service restaurant again? And I realized that I didn't get to visit. You know, I was so busy cooking right. for so many people that I couldn't visit and talk and, you know, hear about their experiences in New Orleans and help them kind of create even more experience. And by being able to really interact personally with our guests, uh, I feel like we're adding a lot of value to their dining experience. And it feels like they're they're just hanging out with a local. <laughs> 
Right. No, it's great. And I love that dinner party atmosphere. So food and community are so important to you and to, you know, most chefs in New Orleans, right? But that's changed dramatically over the last six weeks. So you described what your life was like, you know, uh, BC before COVID. What's it like right now during COVID? So uh, I kind of giggle. I told my best friend today, I said, why am I the only person that I've talked to this week who is busy and doesn't have time to clean out, out their closet? <laughs> I realize it's because my brain is going so fast that I'm trying to scramble and adapt and almost like jump ahead of the curve to predict mm -hmm. how things are going to be in the right. next phase. And one thing that I realize is that that personal interaction that I love about what I do is going to be very, very different, yeah. but somehow we have to create that personal connection and whether that's through video or uh, you know, whatever it's all uh, needs to be, you know, recreated. And yeah. so I am running around trying to think about how my business is going to be reinvented and change in the foreseeable future and also kind of evaluate how our whole hospitality community is going to change and adapt because uh, there are a lot of restaurants out there that have been around for 30 years and right. been doing things the same way. And uh, I, I feel like it's our job. Those of us who have gotten the hang of video and gotten the hang of Kind of innovating that we're going to have to be there to help support these restaurants through their process too. Absolutely. Uh, Jamie just uh, gave us a, a howdy. So hi, Jamie. Um, so I, you know, I feel busier uh, than before too. I think we're all trying to adapt. Um, you know, I, I've enjoyed l l watching your Facebook posts. I know you're having these online cooking classes for people to show them and, and create that personal experience. What's that been like to, to do that online? <laughs> it's been fun, organized chaos. Um, it, it's really fun to see how much people are enjoying uh, cooking with others and making new friends because so many times the people who join the online cooking class, they don't know each other. And they're just the first six people to sign up for my free class. Yeah. And, and we all get together. And it's been fun to see the relationships created as a result of people cooking together. And I right. feel like that is the key for making this successful going forward. Uh, I, I did a live stream cooking class for uh, four kids and their mom. Oh. And we were live on Facebook and it was so much fun. It was for a local charity called Son of a Saint. And uh, we have another one on Thursday. And I realized that if I could wrangle four kids not physically in the room with them right. <laughs> and, and they enjoyed their food, that uh, I kind of feel like I can accomplish anything now. You're a miracle worker. You're definitely a miracle worker. <laughs> So I, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and get your perspective as a, as a native Louisianan. 
you know, w- what are the flaws in the food and agriculture system that, you know, are being exposed now in, in, in not just Louisiana, but maybe the South because of COVID-19? You know, I, I, I know there are going to be sort of breaks in, in how people are getting um, products and, you know, there are shortages probably at the Rouses down the street from y'all. Um, you know, t- tell us a little bit about what sort of flaws and cracks you're seeing. Yeah. So one thing is I feel that there, there are two populations that are, are falling through the cracks, but our community is doing everything we can to lift them back up. And, you know, that would be our children and our seniors and mm-hmm. people whose families. My initial concern when all this started was, what about the kids who only get school lunch? Right. Their only meal of the day. Right. What are we going to do if one, that school lunch goes away, but how is their family going to survive? Right. And also um, immunocompromised sick people, seniors who can't get out to access food. How are we going to get food to them? So those are my immediate concerns that I worry about how is our food system going to be able to handle them and how is it community? Um, Also uh, with access to grocery stores and the ability for grocery stores to restock their shelves and how quickly they can restock them, their shelves. We're, you know, we saw everybody saw the toilet paper. Like that was kind of the first, like, Oh my gosh, maybe things, could potentially get a little crazy if we right. get overboard. Uh, I will say that I have been very proud of the New Orleans community because I feel like no one's buying more meat than they need. Um, I haven't seen anybody with a giant basket of like way too much stuff. Uh, and people are stored, starting to adapt. So I'm really proud to see that my community has had some breakdowns we've seen some challenges but people are trying to fill those cracks and do the best they can for everybody across our city so absolutely i mean it's a scrappy town these are people who've been through a lot they've seen a lot not just katrina other floods, the 2016 floods that I know you helped do a lot of relief with Second Harvest a Food Bank and, and served over 100,000 meals during that time. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think your disaster relief response and the fact that you're thinking ahead and predicting is what makes you very unique as a chef in New Orleans. Yeah, um, it has been crazy. You know, I we went through Hurricane Katrina and people, people helped me. Strangers helped me. People... Right. It just showed up in front of my flooded house and said, how can I help you? And they actually become lifelong friends. But in that moment, I said, you know, it's really weird to be the person on the receiving end of help if you're always the person on the giving end. And I right. said, my goal is to pay this back as much as I can going forward. And so I started doing some disaster relief and small projects. We did a a big one in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a couple of years after Katrina. But during the floods in 2016, you know, what started out as, okay, my friend's neighborhood is flooded. I have a bunch of soup in the freezer at Langlois. Let's just warm this up, put it over some pasta and go feed 200 people. Right. That was my plan. 
that turned into 19 days and over 100,000 meals that uh, my little Facebook page that could um, was able to do for the community. And what I have learned is that when it comes to disaster relief, people want someone to be the spark and people want to be able to trust that spark. Right. And uh, if you and your community can be the cheerleader, be the spark that motivates people, it's unbelievable how contagious that is right. and how your disaster relief efforts just come to life. Right. And, uh, it's also important to realize that in that moment when you start the spark, that is the start of your new network. And that network, whether they're helping you or next hurricane season, they need help from you. Right. You're now creating a network of people who all have a common idea that they want to help their community when it comes to food. Absolutely. I'm interested in hearing what you think about other organizations that, you know, come into New Orleans uh, who are not, you know, native to the region. Uh, the wonderful Jose Andres and, and World Central Kitchen, I know they're active there right now. What are your thoughts about what WCK is doing? Yeah, you know, I, I encourage anyone who will come here and help to come here and help. And uh, I appreciate that. And I, I've been fortunate enough to have conversations over the years with the people uh, with WCK and their their hearts are so in the right place and I love that uh, I always say if you are an outside agency and you're coming into a community try to build a local network mm -hmm. and there are so many local networks of do-gooders and I think that the agencies that end up being successful that's what they're doing because there are people like me on the ground who are not, you know, I do this as I volunteer. I don't, you know, I'm not a charity. I'm not a nonprofit. Right. I my time and energy, but I have a network of people and I understand how New Orleanians and South Louisiana uh, residents think and what they like to eat. And right. as much as, you know, I, I can tell you during the floods in 2016, I had a restaurant and they were amazing. And it was a Vietnamese restaurant. And they they said, we want to give you uh, banh mi's and pho for like 200 people. And I'm going into rural flooded South Louisiana. Right. And I have to find the right fit of where mm -hmm. that's going to go because that could be very, very different food and something that a certain community has never eaten or been exposed right. to. So uh, I do find that it takes a local person to, to be able to understand that and to know that, you know what, red beans and rice, they are happy with red beans and rice. Just right. red beans and rice, gumbo, let's go, all big right. one-pot meals. Um, whereas other communities... Um, maybe have other cultural influences in them and they're more familiar and uh, those flavors are not odd or different or new to them. So Right, or comforting, which is what you need when you're in a crisis. So I think that point you're, you're making about cultural appropriateness is like a, such a huge one. And I, I've seen it, you know, where 
uh, these other organizations come in and it, people are turned off and, and that food gets wasted when, you know, people have worked really hard to, to put it together. So I think that's a huge point and, and many organizations sort of need to follow your lead on that because you, you know this region better than anyone. You, you're such an incredible cheerleader for not only New Orleans and Louisiana, but all of the, the food businesses there. What are you most worried about though right now with your own food business? You know, my biggest concern is the lack of tourism. Uh, New Orleans, uh, our industry is hospitality. In yeah. term, that is our industry. And right yeah. now, the industry is closed. And uh, March and April were set to be my biggest two months in seven and a half years. Oh, gosh. And so I know that that like, can just totally suck the life out of you. And to know that your two biggest months, your doors are closed and you can't do anything. And there are a lot of businesses who rely on that February, March, April, right. and October and November to stay afloat all year. Right. And that's where, you know, because we have tourist season, uh, you have to stay afloat and be lean during the lean times, but kind of save your money during the busy times and help balance that out. And my concern is with the loss of tourist season in March and April and the potential loss of tourist season in October and November, uh, some of these businesses that may have already been on the edge right. lose them. And then I think there's also a quality of life issue in the industry. And if you realize, you know, when we were full service restaurant, I mean, I was 17 hour days, 18 hour day. That was not unheard of. It was crazy. Right. You would hustle, hustle, hustle. And a lot of my colleagues have had an opportunity to actually spend time with their families. Right. And you, you realize that in the food industry, we work every holiday, every weekend, right. we nights, we miss weddings, we miss birthdays. And right. I think we'll see some really incredible chefs just have a shift in their priorities mm -hmm. and realize that maybe having a small restaurant isn't a priority for them anymore. Like sure. I've done that, I've achieved it, I've been successful, but now it's time to focus on my family. And so I think we'll see a little bit of a shakeup of people reevaluating their priorities. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's happening a lot right now. And I've been, you know, I follow New Orleans social media, uh, you know, a lot because I, I miss it and I, I miss the restaurants and the culture there. And I've been seeing chefs sort of trying to reconfigure what their restaurants will look like, you know, after this, at least for a little while. And what makes New Orleans so special in so many ways is, you know, it's you know, when people are in a restaurant, it's crowded and noisy and people are interacting. And like you said before, people are meeting and talking to people who they would never have talked to before. And it's it creates this, you know, really vibrant um, uh, experience, which is why you go to New Orleans. You go to listen to music and be around people and you go to eat this incredible food. I am really, really worried about what New Orleans is going to look like. I mean, I think it's similar in so many ways to how people were worried post-Katrina. Like, how are we going to bring back not just the food culture, but the arts and, and, and music culture? And so any predictions on, uh, you've, you've been through so much in New Orleans, any predictions on how, what it will look like six 
10, 12 months from now? New Orleans is going to be here. We will always be here. We have overcome so much uh, in our 300 year history <laughs> that I know that we can overcome this. Uh, and I think we are a very resilient people. We are very adaptable. And just in the last 15 years, the amount of change we've gone through, right? I think that people are thinking outside of the box right now. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out how we can get that feel in a smaller environment. Yeah. And I predict that we're going to see people being innovative, bringing in and partnering with other businesses to create you know, a safer, more vibrant space. And it could be that places that didn't have music before have music to create some kind of excitement or um, it, it creating, it, turning the food experience beyond a food experience. Right, right. And creating a just a memory and a memorable experience and trying to find that perfect recipe to do so. And I, I, I think we're going to find it. What that recipe is yet, I don't know. Right. But, uh, will technology be involved? Probably. Uh, will uh, it be very different? Absolutely. But I think New Orleans will find a way to stay quintessentially New Orleans in that change. That's good to hear. And you're right. You know, you might not know the recipe right now, but the ingredients are all there. And as this plays out, I, I know people like you and so many others will figure out how to, to make it really work. Um, you know, you're doing so much. You've been getting shout outs that I can see on, on our website of people who are thanking you for everything you do. I, I'm wondering, you know, you are one of the most energetic people I've ever met. I know you keep my, my good friend Jamie going a lot. Who Who's inspiring you right now? Um, right now, honestly, I think back to my parents. Um, you know, they instilled in me that you know, give back to your community, do the right thing. Uh, and so even though they're gone, I want to make them proud and know that that legacy is continuing. Um, I also think that every time I meet just like a regular person on the street who tells me a story of how, oh, I sewed a mask or I picked up groceries for my neighbor. And right. you realize that, um, People are good, you know, <laughs> no matter what you watch on TV or you see on the news and yeah. all the chaos, people are good and they yeah. want to be good. And not everybody tells you all the good things that they're doing. So it inspires me to, to hear what just, you know, the average neighbor is doing right. to help the neighbor next door. I mean, today, a friend of mine told me a story of uh, they had a neighbor that is going through a very tough financial time and they went and bought an extra pork roast and threw it on the smoker and dropped it off on the neighbor's porch and was like, hey, we had, a, you know, we had an extra pork roast. Right, right. And so you realize that people are being aware of the people around them. And that inspires me that we are connecting more with the people around us. 
Absolutely. People are craving to do something. They want to be helpful. So you have you have a question that I'm going to read out loud. What significant changes to our city's restaurant landscape do you anticipate as a result of the pandemic? Will dining with a purpose, like the work you and other restaurants are doing now to help those in need, become part of how we dine out in the future? And this person hopes so. Yes. Um, and I think you're seeing it now. I think you're seeing, uh, you know, the Brennan's group, they're they're feeding their employees. You know, right. you're seeing people uh, finding a way to feed their community and to partner with nonprofits and groups. And uh, I think dining out with a purpose will continue to be a goal. But I also think the purpose is going to change. Right. And, you know, what I see as the next purpose is keeping the businesses that we love and cherish in our community open and sustainable. And that's going to be our purpose for dining out. If we as diners feel like it's a safe space and a space that uh, we feel comfortable dining in, we're going to want to support those businesses so that they can still be a fabric of our community two years from now. Absolutely. That's great. Where can uh, folks find out more information about you, Amy? Sure. I have a a website. It's uh, chefamy.com. And you can find out more about Langwa at langwanola.com. I have Facebook page and I'm on Instagram at Chef Amy Sins. And we'll have that all available on our website and our social media at Facebook. uh, I'm sorry, at foodtank.com. You know, um, You've been so great and you've been so inspiring. And, and I want to end on, on another note. You know, we're, we've been talking about restaurants and, you know, uh, what needs to be done to really help them survive during this. But we also have to remember the artists and musicians that are so much a part of New Orleans culture right now. And, you know, we, we mentioned Jamie before who, you know, works really hard to promote Southern art and artists from all over the world at, at Gallery Orange. And folks can go to gallery-orange.com to find out more about uh, the art that that uh, Jamie feels so passionately about. And they can also go to preservationhallfoundation.org to find out more about how to support the musicians that make New Orleans New Orleans. So I hope everyone will, you know, check out those websites and, and so many more just by Googling how to help musicians and artists in New Orleans. Um, Amy, you're an inspiration. You're really uh, such a, a powerful force and, and your energy I know is keeping a lot of people going right now. So thank Thank you for being on the show. Thanks again for taking care of your your neighbors and and my good friends. Um, A reminder that this episode will also appear on our our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Um, And please join me back here uh, tonight when I'll be interviewing um, uh, chefs from uh, Washington, D.C. Amy, thank you. Please stay well. The world needs you. Today, I finally get to chat with um, a chef I wanted to talk to a long, for a long time, and it's Chef Eric Bruner Yang. Um, I'm super glad he could fit me into his really busy schedule. We'll talk about that in a minute. He has been very busy. Um, but before we do, I want to talk about something that's been happening unrelated to the chef uh, that's happening in the United States right now. And that's that Wendy's is running out of hamburgers. And I, I never thought I'd see the day when a fast food chain uh, in the United States would, um, you know, be running out of, of hamburgers. Uh, there are 
uh, only about 20% of Wendy's restaurants uh, in the United States are able to serve regular ham, you know, beef burgers right now. And so I just think it's a, a very interesting effect of what we're seeing as, as COVID continues to wreak havoc on our food system and our daily food choices and sort of how we're just interacting with the world. At the same time, Beyond Meat and a lot of uh, these alternative protein companies, they're seeing enormous growth in sales. So it's just a really interesting time <laughs> to be, uh, you know, thinking about food and, and, and knowing that the effects of COVID are spreading far and wide. And, you know, I, we've all been hearing about uh, the, the meat processing plants that are still open under uh, an, in the Trump administration's executive order even though many of the workers at these plants in Missouri and Iowa um, are, are uh, you know, filled with uh, asymptomatic and symptomatic uh, uh, food processing workers. These, we've talked about these workers a lot. They're some of the, the they're considered the, really the lowest folks on the totem pole in, in the food system. They're not paid very well. Um, there's a lot of turnover. They're injured a lot. Many of them are immigrants or, or very recent immigrants. So they're, they don't often have great health care or report, um, you know, when they're um, being abused by in the workplace. So just some interesting things to think about. Um, but I'm also excited to, to uh, talk to uh, Chef Eric Bruner-Yang, he's an amazing chef in D.C. In 2011, he opened Toki Underground, a ramen shop that drew a huge wait list because of its amazing food. The restaurant won Eater's D.C. Best New Restaurant the same year. Um, he has since opened several other Washington, D.C. Uh, restaurants, including Maketo, Paper Horse, Brothers and Sisters, Spoken English, and ABC Pony. He was nominated for James Beard's Rising Star Chef in 2015 and was a semifinalist for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic in 2016. I think he was robbed of both. He should have won both. I'm glad he's here today. Um, he's done some amazing things since COVID-19, uh, again, you know, has caused so much havoc on, on how all of us are thinking about food. So um, one of the things that he's done is, is to develop a restaurant revitalization plan um, to address two major problems caused by the virus, and that's loss of jobs and access to food. So Chef Bruner Yang, I'm so glad you could be here. You're in your COVID-19 mobile, it looks like. You're, you know, does it have wings? Can you fly? No, this is my, uh, my COVID office, which is my car. Uh, we just had um, our third baby, so we had to upgrade to a bigger car. Sure. Which is like perfect because I'm spending a lot of time driving around these days. So um, it's quite cozy. That's great. Well, I'm glad you're safe and healthy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what has happened since, you know, March 13th and, and when, you know, your restaurants were, were, you know, had to shut down to keep you and your workers and your staff really healthy and safe. What, what has life been like? Yeah, I mean, leading up until, you know, I think DC's ban went in effect on the 14th and maybe fully implemented on the 15th. But, you know, my businesses, which are predominantly Asian inspired, we had been feeling the effects of kind of the global impact of COVID several weeks prior to its like, you know, crash into the United States. A lot of the businesses on a week to week basis was continually like decreasing as I think subconsciously people, that's not, I mean, subconsciously and overtly, I think people are avoiding eating Asian right. food. I think it's heavily documented at this point. Yeah. Incredible. It's terrible. Yeah. I just think like, 
you know, I live in a, in a city that I feel is pretty progressive. And I, I think that it was just like what people decide what they want and how they want it sometimes, whether they have a bias, I don't think they realize it, you know? Right. Um, and so, you know, we, the, the shutdown was already like, just was like a crash of a slow bleeding death that we were already kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, my company, we had, we had full open restaurants, four fully operational open restaurants. Two of them are closed um, indefinitely right now with really no um, line of sight of when they're going to open. Yeah. Um, and then what I have left is Maketo and ABC Pony. But we were a company that was about 220 plus employees. Wow. Uh, we went down to about 16. Um, and we're about back up to maybe 40. Wow. Well, that that's good progress. And I know this is such a stressful time. Um, but it sounds like, you know, you've you've made a lot of interesting decisions that I think are, you know, a lot of chefs and, and other restaurateurs could could learn from you. I want to get into this revitalization plan that you started. Can you how did you come up with that? I mean, I'm sure you had a lot of sleepless nights between March and, and now. And I, you started this pretty early before many other restaurants were making plans to just sort of figure out what they're their, you know, during COVID operations looked like, and also their post COVID operations looked like? Yeah, I think one of the strengths of my company has never been having these amazing, sustainable, profitable businesses. We've (laughs) always been really good at uh, just being extremely agile and working, uh, you know, punching above our weight, basically. Right. And so, you know, we were kind of uh, really easy. We were able to adapt really easily as much as we could. Um, Yeah what how power of 10 really came about was like what did we need to do to keep you know the remaining staff employed how much do we need to make every week how many meals do we need to serve and that kind of really snowballed into what the final concept of power of 10 was going to be but what really kind of kicked it off is most of my career has been defined on this h street corridor uh, maketo right. is on h street tokyo underground is h street my wife has a business on h street um, our home is on H street. Our nice. kids go to school here. Um, so, you know, we've been heavily invested in this neighborhood for the last 15 years. And I've worked at so many of the bars and restaurants also on this block leading up to when I kind of branched out on my own. So, right. um, you know, I really love this neighborhood and I was driving home one night and, you know, every place was boarded up and it was a Friday night and it was just, you know, really affected me in a way. But not in a way, I think, like, leading up to, like, the first 72 hours of shutting everything down, I was just kind of wallowed in it. But that really just kind of, like, activated me, which was just, like, I need to figure out how to keep as much dollars in my community. uh, Because the more money that you can keep in your your community, the more impact it can have. So that's really where Power of 10 came up, that if a business could do $10,000 a week, it could sustain 10 full-time jobs and make a thousand meals. And that's really right. when we transitioned it into this platform that $10,000 a week in donations or funding can create or sustain 10 full-time jobs and service a thousand free meals in any community in America. So right. it wouldn't just work here for DC. It would work for any city anywhere in the United States. It's incredible. And I know you've been inspired by Chef Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen. But before we talk a little bit about that, you know, some similarities, I want to make sure everyone has the website. It's powerof10initiative.com. And the 10 is numerical. Don't spell it out. So powerof10initiative.com. 
learn more about it, donate if you feel inclined. I used to live in DC. I love H Street. I love seeing how that whole area has been, you know, transformed since I lived there in in the mid 2000s. It's amazing the restaurants and the the vibe that that goes on there. So I I mean, we we need to keep those communities, that community around H Street and other uh, communities in DC who depend on the restaurant industry alive. I love how you said that you're agile and that you punch above your weight. Food Tank is often described the same way. We're a small and scrappy organization. We, you know, and we we understand that ability to pivot when you're small. You can make decisions a lot easier than if you're a huge, you know, uh, a nonprofit or corporation or whatever. So I really appreciate that. That resonates a lot with me. Um, you know, I, I mentioned uh, World Central Kitchen. I, I'm sure that there's a lot of, of synergies between what you and Jose do and, and, and Nate uh, Mook do over there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously in D.C., um, known Jose Andres well, and I know Nate really well. Right. Uh, back when World Central Kitchen had a different mission, which was about job training and sanitation and schools, culinary schools, global culinary schools. Um, I uh, would participate a lot in World Central Kitchen. We actually did World Central Kitchen project in Cambodia, where my wife's family is from. And we also did a World Central Kitchen bakery in Nambia um, several years ago. So um, we've just very close. A, A lot of what we are doing obviously is just about um, keeping our communities intact. We're also obviously servicing food for people in need. So we're in constant communication with World Central Kitchen and other organizations um, just to make sure that we're not overlapping and that we can support each other. Uh, They've been super supportive. Also the Lee Initiative, um, you know, they provided us a $10,000 grant as a pay it forward from the grant money that they were getting. And that was fantastic. Um, we're making meals for No Kid Hungry, which is an organization I've cooked a lot of charity dinners for. Right. So it was really like uh, going into like a data bank of people that we've worked with over the last 10 years saying, hey, I need help. I want to help. What do I do? This isn't my field. Right, um, right. You know, usually I'm, I've been, I'm, I'm being asked and I'm helping now. It's like I want to coordinate all this stuff. So, yeah. Um, you know, we've moved very quickly. We're on week six. We launched on March 26. Um, we've raised $200,000 to date. It's incredible. Um, I think we have 10 DC restaurants participating and we've served about 20,000 meals. This week we'll hit 25,000 meals um, since March 26. So we've, we've put back, yeah, we've put back about $200,000 back into the DC economy, back to DC restaurant owners. And that's been really great. That's awesome. So again, powerof10initiative.com. If folks who are listening can go there, donate and learn more. Um, I, I'm interested in how you choose where the meals go. You you mentioned, you know, coordinating with other organizations who are also doing relief and serving meals. How do you choose where the, the meals that you're, you're preparing go? So if you're not familiar with Washington, D.C., our city's broken up into wards. Um, my businesses are in Ward 6. Um, they're essentially like counties, I guess, right? So right. my businesses are Ward 6 parishes, right? And I've been a member of this community for a long time. So when we announced that this was happening, uh, we haven't had to figure out where meals go. We just, we have more meals requests than wow. we can we can make. Um, at one point in time, we were just saying yes to everyone, uh, whether or not we had the funding. 
um, just because we didn't want anybody to go without food. Um, And now we've kind of grown into the funding as we've grown into the meals. But um, yeah, we're making five to 6,000 meals a week uh, for people who have really just asked us. We have a contract with um, a grant with No Kid Hungry. We're making meals for a couple of their programs. That's great. Um, We had a couple of really nice ladies who just called us and said, hey, can you deliver us meals? And then they got like a little group together. So we call them Yvonne's group. So we deliver to like 18 of Yvonne's. I hope Yvonne's watching watching this. That's great. (laughs) That's wonderful. Um, But yeah, yeah, just people that have asked, we've made it. And uh, no questions asked, you know. That's great. That's great. I, I want to hear more about how communities are reacting and, you know, what you're serving and how they're sort of, you know, what, what, what feedback you're getting from them. Um, it's definitely like, um, you know, some, some meals are going to Washington Hospital Center. They're a lot of fun um, yeah. and they get a variety of different stuff. Um, some, uh, some of them are very medical specific diets. So we have to keep those pretty simple for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of them are large households. So we break everything up into platters, like wow. here's your vegetable, here's your meat, here's your starch. Yeah. Um, and then one organization, we just started just doing groceries. So we just drop groceries off. So everybody is very, has a different need and we try to make it happen. Um, you know, food security also comes with a lot of people though haven't tried a lot of foods in their lives. Right. Um, so that's something that we really try to be cognizant of and work on um, because what they should be eating on a daily basis is not what they typically have access to. Sure. Um, so that's always a tough balance of like what they want to be eating and on a daily basis and what we're providing. And we just kind of continue to work with it. You have to build that relationship of trust. They may right. not like it. They may not like it off the bat. Um, but if you're very consistent about it, they'll, they'll, they'll learn to grow to you, you know? Sure. No, we were talking to a chef in New Orleans today who's doing a lot of relief work. And, you know, she's getting donations from Vietnamese restaurants. And she's, you know, there's there's a place in New Orleans where, the, you know, those meals will be accepted and it'll be great. But in part other parts of southern Louisiana, you know, what she said is they want red, you know, red beans and rice and that so cultural appropriateness and you know figuring out what people are willing to accept um so that they have dignity you know you don't want to just be serving people food and and sort of forcing that on them yeah for sure and uh uh but and also trying to frame it in a way of trying to help them get nutritional needs Uh, but sometimes it's better just to have food that they will eat versus making them food that they're not going to touch Absolutely. And that's that trust and that community building will last long after this crisis is over. So I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, a lot of support once your restaurants can open again and and people are are back, you know, and hopefully that's sooner rather than later. Um, So you mentioned a few grants that you've been getting. You have the website uh, put up and people can donate there. How, how, what are other ways people can support you? What do you need right now? Or, you know, I'm sure that you're, I, I at least hope that companies are donating product and produce and, and raw goods to you. But what, what are your biggest needs right now? Uh, you know, just public support like this is amazing. Thank you for sharing your platform. Yeah. The more that we can talk about it, the better. Um, I, there are so many amazing organizations um, out there. Just support. If you have the means, support the one that you connect to with the most. Um, 
And I think that's all that matters. I think like everybody plays a role right now, um, whether it's having to stay at home, uh, whether if you're working or whatever, you know, play that role and, and, and do your part. And I think that's all that really matters. I think like we are also getting to that phase where we need to, as a community, decide what the rest of the year is going to be like. I think yeah. we're past, we're past, um, we're past the point of no return, you know, and like, um, what's the best way to move forward? What's the best way to be safe? What is our new world normal going to be like? Yeah. Um, and just tackling that with positive energy, um, I think is the only way to get through it. Yeah, no, being upbeat and, and keeping that positive vibe going, I know is important for, you know, when you're working these 12 or 16 hour days, which I, I'm sure you're working. I, I know part of the goal with the Power of 10 initiative is to get other cities to do this, to replicate this model because you feel like it's really replicable. How is the DC government giving you any feedback or have other cities reached out to you about just starting this in their own in their own communities? Yeah, I think that, you know, definitely state and federal governments are particularly bogged down, especially with new organizations. I think they've done a good job working with organizations that they've worked with before. I sure. think that's kind of the experience we've had in D.C. Um, but uh, we met in an amazing group of uh, uh, restaurateurs in Charlotte, North Carolina, Burke Hospitality. Right. And they started their own chapter of Power of Ten a few weeks ago. Um, they reached out to us. They said they loved the platform. Um, we asked them if they needed anything and they received the grant from their county. Um, so we, we built them a website um, and, and helped them kind of get a lot of materials together. Mm -hmm. um, but they've kind of been, they took the idea just, which was our goal. It's an open source concept. Um, and they took the idea and ran with it. And so they have a website, power of 10 initiative, charlotte.com. And I you can kind of donate directly to them. Yeah, That's it was awesome. It was, it was like our second week and they hit us up and, I, I never had met the chef before that group and uh, it was great to connect with them. No. And I'm sure as this grows and as people learn more about you, you know, other restaurant tours will do the same and, and keep it going. It's incredible that you've done so much in such a little, in such a small amount of time. I'm wondering how your employees, I know you had to, you know, furlough or lay off or let go so many of them, what, what their reaction has been as well. You know, I think like we, we reached out to, uh, we kind of got back to a place where we were able to hire people back. I, you know, I think there were, I, it was a very, we tried to over communicate as much as we could sure. throughout the process. Um, you know, for me, I'm very hands-on. So I do have a lot of personal connection with most of our employees. Right. Um, and, you know, when we got to a point where we could start bringing people back to work, um, you know, some people wanted to stay home and I think that's great. And some people sure. wanted to come back to work. Um, not everybody worked full time. So, you know, the governments have been able to step up to if they can get all their paperwork through. Um, right. Allow, you know, allow the people to have a decision for the most part, if it's if, if it's better for them to stay home or they want to go back out to the workforce and we're sure. open to anybody that makes that decision. But sure. I think moving forward, restaurants, including my own, um, including myself, um, we have to be very critical about how we used to run our businesses. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I have to do differently and figure out what that means because what we did to 200 employees uh, wasn't fair to them. Um, 
but I didn't have any choice. Of course. And no guidance, not guidance. There was, this is such a new situation. It's very brave of you to say that, that, you know, you, you made him, you know, made, yeah, absolutely. You know, and like, and we didn't have any um, safety net for them. So I think like, that's something that we had to figure out moving forward. It's also very tough to try to adjust as you go. But I think, you know, there was a lot of movements for anti-tipping, not anti-tipping, that's a terrible word for gratuity included or service included sure. um, to make everything more equitable. And it, that's very hard to do when you already have an existing business with existing employees right. and you're fully functioning. But now is a really good opportunity, not to say to revisit that conversation, but everyone to think about how to do business differently. That Absolutely. includes restaurants, that includes the government. Um, nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like small businesses in America, nonprofits in America. Yeah. Um, we should not be the people that are holding our economy together, right. right? Or holding our food systems together. Right. It's the nonprofits, not the federal government, that are out here putting it out, helping people with food, food security issues. Yeah. Um, it's the small businesses in America that have been paying for health insurance for American citizens instead of the government. Those types of things keep us from being able to have breathing room for situations like this. And, you know, you see other countries who have tackled COVID more successfully is because they actually have services for their citizens. Yeah. Um, And that's something that really needs to be figured out. I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned that this, you know, there's going to be a new normal. There's not going to be business as usual. Businesses are going to change, including restaurants, because they have to. And I think this gives us an opportunity. I mean, I know you're busier than ever, but so many people are taking this time to reflect on what this will look like. And, you know, we talked to Chef Dan Barber a few weeks ago, and he's thinking so critically about this. And I know Jose and and Nate and you and and so many others are trying to figure out, like, you know, what will things be six and 10 and 12 and 18 months from now? And and that's a real opportunity that, you know, uh, that this crisis brings. And and it is one of the many silver linings. And we, we try to bring that up on every live cast, that there are things that are coming out of this that we can really learn from and use to improve the lives of workers better and, and figure out what essential really means and, you know, who is non-essential um, and, and to bring back, you know, sort of that, that positivity that you, you seem to just, you know, it's part of you. Yeah. I think that our country, our country has neglected the minimum wage worker for decades. Yeah. And that is what is keeping our country going at the moment. The grocery shopper, the Instacarter, the cook, right. the meatpacking facility, the bus driver, postal worker, people that have just been ignored. Yeah. And um, and we're still taking advantage, right? <laughs> totally. And I think like, um, but that's what we do. We, we work and we keep the world humming, you know? And I think that uh, hopefully things will come back. Yeah, I, I, I think we'll come back better and stronger. And D.C.'s restaurant industry and D.C. folks are super resilient. You know, again, I was talking to a New Orleans chef today. That's a city also full of hope and resilience. There, we'll, we'll all come back from this. I think the world will look very different. And I think so many things will actually be better. Um, again, folks can go to the thepowerof10initiative.com. That's um, 
1010 not spelled out uh learn more about uh eric's work and and the the what what he's doing to really keep dc alive and thriving um my last question eric i know you're busy is who's inspiring no who is inspiring you the most right now is there a particular person uh or set of folks i'll just tell you what i've been having fun with how about that Perfect. okay uh, I went on a deep YouTube dive of Harry Styles last night, <laughs> and um, that guy is so handsome. He's so dreamy. And I don't know why, but I did for like an hour and a half. I, w- I was going to do my late night yoga. I started doing yoga during this because um, nice. I'm too lazy to actually run, but um, I can't see my chiropractor right now, so I've, I've been trying to... If you've noticed, I've been going like this, like a lot during the. You're crackly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and um, but I found that really useful. But I was procrastinating, so I wanted this Harry Styles dive. Love Harry Styles officially, um, <laughs> and uh, I love the some good news, the John Krasinski thing. I think it's amazing and hilarious. Yep. Um, my wife's birthday's tomorrow, so happy oh, birthday happy- to my wife. Happy birthday! What's her name? Uh, Zeta. Zeta, happy um, birthday. Yep. I am her husband. That's how she likes me to. <laughs> uh, so I love her. I have that, but, um, but happy birthday to her. She's super inspiring. She's at home with the three kids holding the fort down. Um, I do the, I do a three hour morning shift and I feel exhausted. Sure. And she does the rest of the day. So Gosh. I don't know how she does it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I'm re- I've been really uh, I'm usually not super um, politically active, um, but I've been reading all of the um, speeches by um, Greta Thunberg, and they're amazing. She's just yep. so matter of fact. Um, as you know, I have you know three kids, and my daughter is so sharp, and it just reminds me of just like you know kids just tell you how it is, yeah. right? Um, and obviously she's, you know, above and beyond that, but just that like bluntness that when, yeah. it, when, when a child is telling you like, what's up, I really love that. So that's what, it, that's what I've been oh up my to. Gosh. That's amazing. This interview made me so happy. You don't have any idea how much I needed this. You made me laugh. You've made me inspired. I am a big fan. Um, you know again, why Wendy's doesn't have beef? Cause they don't know how to cook it. Right. There's so much frozen <laughs> meat in this country right now, but none of it's shaped in a trot in a, square that's the problem yeah, yeah. good point eric uh, again the power of 10 initiative.com please go donate i am insisting that everyone go donate now thank you so much chef thanks to all of our viewers a uh, reminder to join us back here at 1 p.m eastern time tomorrow when i'll be talking to nate mook of uh D- i'm sorry of world central i will a world central kitchen thank you so much you stay safe please yeah thank you so much bye bye-bye Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 